0: Glory in this place today, Lord. Show your glory in this place today. Lord, every Sunday, I felt the Lord saying to me, every Sunday when my people gather, it's a trip up the mountain so that they can be transfixed on the glory of my face. Jesus, fix our eyes on your face this morning and all that you have to say with us. Lord, we humble our hearts to receive from you, Lord, and many of us this morning are not where we need to be, and you are going to take us there this morning, so by the power of your Holy Spirit, do the work in our hearts that needs to be done, that you always do as a work of love, Lord, so we sit here today to drink deeply from the rivers of living water that flow from you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We cross. We thank you for your shed blood. We thank you that we are accounted righteous because of what you have done. So, Lord, come Holy Spirit and fill this place with your joy, with your peace and your love in Jesus name. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. I've been at one of them them wild conferences this week, so I'm all fired up because I've been really just soaking in the Lord's presence and worship for hours with the, with the folks over at the conference that was going on over in Longwood at a church called Church on the Living Edge. Man, that's an edgy church name, isn't it? And I want to just tell you a one story because it's all about God's glory today. And I want to tell you one thing that brings God's glory is his supernatural healing power. And there was so much of that flowing in that church this week. It was incredible. So let me tell you a story. And if you don't believe me, ask me after the service, and I'll show you the video on my phone because I took a video of it. There was a young woman who was completely deaf in her right ear. Completely deaf in her right ear. And one of the uh, speakers, uh, Randy Clark, some of you know who that is, uh, definitely a a man who ministers in healing, uh, began to pray for her and began to test her ear. This was at the end of a service, and he was kind of um, moving, making his way through the um, congregation and out, and he ended up stopping and praying for her. So I, I turn around to see what's going on, and I hear him testing her ear and saying, Here, here. And she was trying to hear. It was a test of faith to see if the healing was coming. And uh, she was completely healed. So he gets way back from her by like 20 feet and says something. I don't even remember. And then she... And then she says that she's holding her left ear to make sure that she can't hear out of it. She's got both of her ears like this, so she can't cheat. And then she says clear as day what he said from 20 feet away. She's weeping, weeping, weeping. And everybody around is like, Woo! <laughs> like Jesus just healed her ear, just opened her ears. And his word says his word says that those who believe in him will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Because his healing power is in us already, but we have to release it, okay? And so I want to talk about the glory of the Lord today. That's just one manifestation of his glory when he heals the sick or sets people free or brings people into his kingdom through calling on his name. But um, I love uh, talking about when I do my sermons to kind of try to put it in the whole context of the biblical story. You know that, so I'm going to do that again today. Chapter 1, Adam and Eve. God creates them as the pinnacle of his creation. He sees them as representatives for him. And the whole the whole creation is God's temple, okay? And the author of Genesis is trying to tell us there's something unique about this God because he's the true God. He doesn't just have a temple made by human hands. The whole cosmos is his creation. And in the ancient world, it was believed that every deity had a representative of themselves in their temple, and that's what we call idols or statues. Idols or statues. But in Genesis, the true God of heaven and earth, the cosmos being his temple, puts a living, breathing representative of himself in his temple, and that is man. Okay? And so what the purpose of a representative, or what, what uh, is in Greek, the word is icon, is to reflect something. It's to reflect the maker. And so man and woman's vocation from the very beginning, our commission, is to reflect his glory. And that's why God says to him, he gives them a commission and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it. So the language there is one of I'm commissioning you to co rule this planet with me to, to be stewards in my temple to take care of it, to make families, to rule with justice and love and mercy and all those things that are characteristics of my nature as the Creator. That's what he was saying to them, and that was their commission to do that. They were meant to, like, glow with, the, with godness. They were meant to reflect him in everything that they did. And then you know how the story goes? They, they, they fail because of sin. Instead of obeying, they, they, uh, they take of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, which made, gave them knowledge like God. It was a temptation to, instead of be his image reflectors, to be him himself. And when they did that, the relationship was broken and they were distanced from God. Now, we think about that story and we think, what, this, this is why we talk about humanity is depraved. You know, the Calvinists talk about total depravity. The whole of man is depraved and in need of redemption. And I believe that at some level. But the thing that we cannot forget is that humanity, our humanity, was always intended to be a vessel of divinity. Okay, That's not sacrilegious. I'm not saying you are meant to be God himself, but you're meant to be a vessel of his divine attributes, power and glory so that you can rightly represent him and rule on the earth with justice, love and all of those things. But sin is what disrupts the human vocation. So we, it's not just that God is grumpy and he's like, ah, you sinned, I don't like you anymore. It's that when we sin, distance comes between us and God and then our vocation to reflect him gets all distorted and disrupted. So the whole Bible story is God, God is not freaking out. He has a plan, but he's going to reestablish human beings back into their vocation with their original nature. He's going to deal with the problem so that we can do what he called Adam and Eve to do. To reflect his glory in the world. That's what the whole Bible story is about. But The whole Bible story is not about how you get into heaven and how you get out of hell. Okay, it is in a sense, but it's about it is more about how heaven gets into you and pushes hell out of you so that you can live in heaven right here and right now for all of eternity. That's what the story of the Bible is about. And then, of course, one day we will be totally glorified in his presence in the place that we call heaven, where uh, where God dwells and heaven will come to earth and renew all things. That's the biblical story. There's so many misunderstandings about that. Right. About what Christians believe most in many of those misunderstandings are the church's fault because um, we, we have lacked really understanding and clarity about what the Bible really says. So what I want to look at today um, in talking about how God recovers this vocation in us is I want to start in Luke chapter 9. This was so difficult to pick between the passages because you might have been able to tell there's a theme running in all of them about the revelation of God's glory. Um, But I want to focus on Luke chapter 9 this morning. And this is today we call in the church's calendar as Anglicans, We call this the Transfiguration of our Lord. It's the last Sunday of Epiphany. And um, on Wednesday, this next week is Ash Wednesday. So we begin Lent, 40 days um, looking towards Easter. But the last Sunday of Epiphany is always Transfiguration Sunday, where the gospel reading is about the Transfiguration of Jesus. And I'm going to talk to you about what that is. So Luke chapter 9, if you have a Bible, verse 28, or just follow along in the bulletin, says um, eight days after Jesus... Said this, he took Peter uh, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. Okay, so I want to make a point about this verse, and that is that uh, mountain tops in the ancient Near Eastern world—that's the Bible world—were believed to be places of revelation. They're a place on the mountaintop. You're closer to heaven, right? And so heaven and earth overlap on the mountaintop. And so when you see something happening on a mountaintop in the Bible, there's probably a good chance that the author's trying to tell you some kind of supernatural revelation is going to happen. There's going to be communication between God and humanity on the top of the mountain. It's what you saw in the Exodus reading when Moses went up the mountain. He always met with God where at the top of the mountain and God's glory would manifest. So Jesus takes Peter, James and John for a private Prayer meeting up to the mountaintop. Many of you know that every morning that you wake up and you make your coffee, it's an invitation from Jesus to take you to the mountaintop to commune with your Heavenly Father in all of His glory. It is an invitation. We, we can't miss it. Don't miss it. So they go up there. Um, now, when you go to prayer with expectation, I don't necessarily think Peter, James, and John had any particular expectations, but when you and I go up the mountaintop with Jesus with expectation, you're, you are entering a place where heaven touches earth. You are. When your heart has faith and expectation. Now, you might say, you might say I don't sense that, Father came when I pray. I just don't feel like that. You talk about passion and expectation and everything. But listen, I'm just telling you, keep pressing in a little bit more every day and say, God, give me more faith for prayer. Give me expectation that you want to meet with me and that when your presence comes, it's going to be so sweet and undeniable because Lord, I want that kind of communion with you. And God always feeds the hungry. He always feeds the hungry. Okay. So they, they go up the mountaintop and in verse 29, it says this, as he was praying, Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed. Now, who's that like that you just heard about in Exodus? Moses. Okay, so there's a, there's a link here. The whole Bible story is connected. It's coherent. It's all cohesive. It's all connected. And Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that happens in the Old Testament. It's all a type and a shadow of things to come that are fulfilled in him. And so it's telling us, Luke is telling us, his face shone like Moses's. It's like Luke is saying, <clears throat> pay attention, reader, because there's revelation going on here. But then it also says this. His clothes, the rest of him, became as bright as a flash of lightning. Okay, so Luke is telling us not only his face, but all the rest of him was being transfigured into glory. So he's superior to Moses. Luke is very concerned with us knowing this and seeing this in this passage, and you'll see more of that in a moment, the superiority of Jesus. But he's like a new Moses. He's like a new Moses. And it was a first century belief amongst Jews that you would receive new glorified bodies when you enter heaven. So Peter, James, and John would have believed that. And what they would have been seeing, they would have been like, wow, that's the glorified body of heaven. Like we're seeing a glimpse into heaven right now. So what's happening is heaven and earth are overlapping on this mountaintop. And, it's, and it's in the, whole, the whole point is to point to Jesus, as we'll see in just a moment. Okay, verse 30 says this, Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. So, so these guys lived 1,000 years to, to 1,500 years before Jesus walked the earth. And now they're there. And they're glowing with their heavenly splendor. Interesting. Now, is there any significance to why Moses and Elijah? Why not Adam or Methuselah or Joshua or somebody else? Why Moses and Elijah? And I believe that is because they represent the old covenant of the Old Testament. Moses, law, Elijah, prophets, the law and the prophets. Jesus is always talking about the law and the prophets speak of me. So they represent the old covenant, but now the man of the new covenant is standing between them, transfigured in glory himself. Now, it's going to get really interesting here because it tells us in verse 31, Luke gives us a little sneaky detail using the Greek language that he was writing in. And he says, he, now Luke could have said, they spoke about his, his crucifixion. They spoke about his coming death. They spoke about this. He could have said it in a number of ways. But he says this, they spoke about his departure. And in the Greek, the word departure, now I don't like going, oh, Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm not a Greek expert. I know a pinch. But this is significant. The word departure in Greek is exodon, which is where we get the word Exodus what was the Exodus what was the act of the Exodus it was God's people held in bondage and slavery being delivered through the parting of the Red Sea and they exited through the Exodus out of Egypt and slavery and God was taking them towards the promised land so why is why in the world does all this matter at all because Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah about a new Exodus that he is about to lead He's glowing like Moses, so he's the new Moses. And they're speaking about an exodus that he is going to make, an exodus where he's not going to lead people through a literal ocean, but he's going to lead them out of drowning in their sin, sickness, and death. I'll try this side. He's going to lead people out of drowning from sickness, sin, and death. <laughs> okay, that's it. That's what's going on here. So Luke is pointing at the cross. He's saying it's all about the cross and what he's about to do. He's about to bring glorious transfiguration to all of humanity by paying the price for our sins that we could not pay for ourselves. I cannot achieve glory. I cannot achieve um, being face-to-face with God through my own efforts. Through being enlightened or whatever we've been studying, we've been, I've been teaching on Buddhism in the um, early morning class. And in, in, in Buddhism, God bless them, their thoughts so that you achieve nirvana, which is essentially to be your ego gets dissolved into the great essence of the universe through your own efforts. And, and Jesus came because that's not true. We cannot achieve salvation through our own efforts. It's only by grace that we can be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. But thanks be to God, even though we deserve punishment, He chose to love us and extend His mercy to us in Jesus. And so they're speaking about Him going to the cross. You see, those who follow Jesus will never drown. They'll never drown in the sea of sin and judgment and condemnation because they've been delivered out of it forever. Now, the cross was a great exchange, right? Where Jesus repairs the separation between you and the Father, between me and the Father. That's what the cross is about. And so what he's doing there, forgiveness of sins is like central to the gospel. I totally believe that, but there's more to the story. What Jesus is doing on the cross is restoring the human vocation that was given to Adam and Eve. But to live out that vocation as representing God to the world. You have to be in God's presence to do that and reflect his presence. Well, sin hinders that. So what had to happen? There had to be a sacrifice that satisfied justice against sin. And Jesus made that sacrifice. So not only when he died on the cross, did he cleanse you of your sin? He, you know how Ephesians says he lifted us up and seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ. He lifted you up and restored you to your original vocation and your original nature. That's amazing. The gospel being a Christian is not about living a good Christian life and being a good moral person and then getting to heaven when you die. Obviously, you have to you need to be a good moral person, but we've we've dumbed it down and watered it down. And therefore, we have no expectation about what our lives could actually look like in reflecting the glory of God. We don't realize that the nature that we had before Adam fell has been restored in Jesus the, the, the person, the people that God intended us to be. And yes, we still battle with that old man, that old nature that rears its ugly head and, and tempts us to pride and lust and greed and all those things. But God sees us, because of what Jesus has done, as lifted above that in righteous. That means that he sees us as in right relationship with him. The word righteousness, if you look it up in the uh, like a concordance or in a, like a Bible dictionary, it actually means like Something being what it was meant to be, okay? So when, you're, when God declares you righteous because you put your faith in the blood of Jesus, you are again now what you were created to be, okay? This is, it should challenge us. It <laughs> challenges me because we, we think too much and we're lost. And, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace and it's just going to be another day of sinning, but God has forgiven me. Thanks, God, I'll get to heaven. And God says, no, I've given you a righteous nature to live above that. It's not that you're never going to struggle, but that's not how God sees you anymore. The New Testament never refers to a Christian as sinner. It doesn't. So why do we? But it does refer to them as hagios. Well, that's Greek. Saint. Saint. One who has been set apart. So you've been set apart and seated in heaven with Jesus when you put your trust in him. You're not just forgiven so that you don't have to go to hell when you die and be separated from God. You're immediately brought into his presence and that's where your true identity is. And it's secure. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. No one can pluck my sheep out of my hand. So, so living into this is it really has a lot to do with shifting our mindset and believing what the Bible says God says about us is true, rather than what we feel in our emotions is true. I'm just a failure. I'm a sinner. I sin every day. I fail. I just can't do this Christian life. I can't tell anybody about Jesus. I can. I can. I am. I'm this. I'm that, and the other thing. And God says you are who you, I say you are, and in my Son you are righteous, and you are you are restored to your vocation to reflect me to this world in powerful ways. That's why somebody like Randy Clark can simply calmly pray for a girl who has deafness and begin to test her. And with faith, God comes in the room and his glory is manifested and her ear is open now and she can hear for the rest of her life. Because he, he gets it. And every time we, we walk in that kind of faith, we're, we're actually living more like we really are, who, who, living into who we truly are. Uh, verse 33, Peter is always, he's always a goofball, isn't he? It's like he's nervous or something. I, I, I really wish I could see this, this scene. Now he, Peter's, it says they're very sleepy. So they're all, the disciples are always falling asleep at the prayer meetings, you know? So don't, don't be like them, (laughs) Now, if it's the end of the day and you've been praying for a while and you fall asleep while you're praying, I, I think God adores that. Right? I think he thinks how sweet my child is fallen asleep in my arms. Um, but they, they apparently they, they didn't drink enough coffee before the prayer meeting. Uh, I always do. I always do. Um, so they're sleepy. But then when they come awake, they they see his glory and they see Moses and Elijah standing with him. And Peter, he's always got to say something right away. He has no filter. He doesn't process. He's like me. He's a verbal processor, so he just when he gets a thought, he says it out loud instead of thinking, is this actually a good idea? Should I say this out loud? That's got me in trouble a lot in the pulpit. But anyway, he says, Master, oh, this is great. It's so good to be here. Moses, uh, Moses and Elijah are here too, and they're glowing in all their splendor. So I'm telling you what I'm going to do. Now, at this point, Jesus does not recognize fully who Jesus is. Peter does not recognize fully who Jesus is. So he says, let's make a tent, a dwelling for all three of you, because the, the glory is just glowing on you guys. And this word he uses here, what does our translation say? Dwelling. Let's make a uh, shelter. The word is it's drawn from the Old Testament. and It's a word that is used to, to um, describe the tabernacle in the Old Testament where God's glory dwelt. So Peter's like, it seems like a good idea. He says, hey, there's God's glory is shining on Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. They're all representatives of God. Let's make tabernacles for them. But what he's missing is that Jesus is different. You can't put Jesus on the same shelf as Moses and Elijah. He's the fulfillment of everything Moses and Elijah were. He's not only a prophet and a teacher. He is Yahweh himself in the flesh. And Peter doesn't get that yet. And so it comes out of his partial understanding of who Jesus is. And God is patient with us as we grow in our development of who and our understanding of who Jesus is. But we we need to understand that we can never uh, reduce him. During this cults and religions class, I said the thread that I see in every cult or every other religion in their view of Jesus is to demote him just a little bit. And that's what the devil always wants to do. If he succeeded, if in your mind he has demoted Jesus a little bit from divine son of God, glorious, eternal son of God, creator, life giver, uh, redeemer, savior of the world. If he can just demote him to really good teacher, better than all the other teachers in the world. If he can demote him to enlightened guru, he's happy because he's robbed you of the ability to truly know him for who he is. Okay, and so Peter doesn't get it yet, but Jesus is patient. As always, and Peter does come around, as we know, because you've read the story. But here's what, here's what happens. It says this, a, a, a cloud appears, okay? There's a, there's a glory cloud. There's, remember, God uh, followed his people. He led them in the wilderness by a, being a cloud by day and a fire by night. So this is a divine manifestation. It's an, a, a theophany, an epiphany. And it's a cloud, and they're afraid. I want to talk about this just for a second. When, when the glory of God manifests in a place, it might be a natural response to be afraid. Maybe it's the right response. But God doesn't uh, say, yeah, that's right, you should be afraid. Actually, in Mark's version of the story, Jesus says, don't be afraid. The voice says, don't be afraid. So the voice comes out of this cloud, which is clearly from heaven, and says, this is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. It's a quote from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, from another prophet. And God is saying he's the fulfillment of everything. This is the father in heaven, preaching the only sermon he ever is interested in preaching. Look at my son. It's the only sermon he's ever interested in preaching. Look at my son. Christian, are you struggling with guilt and shame, a, sem- a sense of separation or distance from God? Look at his son. Are you powerless in your Christian life? Look at his son. Are you struggling with sin in your Christian life? Look at his son. Are you sick? Look at his son. Are you discouraged? Look at Jesus. He holds everything that you need in his person. And his heart flows out towards you in love. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavily burdened and I will give you rest. He loves you eternally no matter what your struggle is no matter how far you feel from God, no matter where you are in your spiritual life, God wants you to hear these words. Look at my son. He's the answer. Behold him. Behold him. That's God's solution to all of life's problems and difficulties. Behold him. So when I'm walking through struggling, when I'm walking through suffering, when I'm walking through difficult times of discouragement, I look to him and maybe he'll bring a breakthrough like that and I'll get what I want. But maybe he'll just say, this is a season. I want you to keep your eyes fixed on me. I'm with you. Look at Jesus, because everything that belongs to Jesus for a Christian who's put their trust in him and made him Lord of their lives, everything that belongs to him belongs to you. His purity is yours. Now, I know it doesn't feel like that. His righteousness, his righteous record, his right standing before God in a place of eternal love and joy, it belongs to you now. And the Christian life is probably a getting up day by day and reminding ourselves that it's not about us. It's about what he has done. And when he died, he said, it is finished. The work was done. And when you put your trust in him, You identified with his resurrection and he ascended to the father and he got his inheritance and he poured out his spirit on his church. And all of that is yours. Not because you had a really good day of doing good deeds for people. But because you and I didn't measure up. To the perfect holiness and glory of God, we fell short of it. Paul says all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. Have you ever thought about what that verse means? People just think, oh, it just means that God's standard is here morally and I've fallen short of it. Well, it implies that. But to fall short of God's glory means to be unable to reach it. What were we created to do? Live in his glory and reflect it to the world around us. That's what's going on in the Garden of Eden. So when we are, what Paul says, justified by faith, by what jesus has done by putting our trust in him that's god declaring us righteous so that we can be restored to live in his glory i know it's hard to believe it's hard to believe and like i said what we need to do is think on it often that's why paul says things like consider yourself dead to sin and alive to god in christ well why would you need to consider it because it's already true Don't get up thinking uh, another day of having a sinful nature and a a good and a renewed nature by Jesus. And they're just going to be fighting all day and I'm going to struggle and I'm probably going to fall into the one. And then the Bible tries to lift us out of that mindset and to say that's not who you are anymore. You're not you're not resigned. You don't have to be resigned to that thing. You can live in victory in the spirit by seeing yourself as God sees you. He's already declared you righteous. He's not going to change his mind. You did not morally earn your way into his favor. You're not going to morally earn your way into a demotion out of it. It's not about that. But when you know that you've been saved and delivered and that God sees you as righteous. You know that that it's going to manifest in your life by the way that you treat others and by the way that you walk in moral purity and spiritual power and all those things. So, again, we don't earn it. We receive it and we walk in it. Now, if you, this, is what the, this is what the Bible says, okay? Now, you said every, you say everything that is Jesus is ours? Listen to what Paul says, Ephesians 1, 3. He's talking to Christians. He says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Okay? So God's perspective of you, sees you from a heavenly perspective of having access to every spiritual blessing, walking around in the heavenly places. In the heavenly realms. But he says this, because we are united with Christ. Or some translations say, in Christ, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So it's our union with him that locks us into God's glory and righteousness and purity and power forever. And the Christian life is battling often my, my mind and my thoughts in the thoughts that come from the devil that try to d- demote me. When in God's eyes, I'm not. And when, when, because when the enemy or when your own thoughts can convince you that you're just going to be failing all the time, morally, you're going to constantly be in bondage to lust or drugs or, or whatever, you're, you're gonna, you're going to see yourself as that you're going to live it out. But if you say, no, 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 I'm not in bondage to anything anymore. I'm righteous in God's eyes. When he looks on me, I'm his kid. He smiles on me and he sees me as pure and blameless in his sight. So that's not who I am anymore. So I don't need that. So it's a mindset shift. It is, and the, by God's grace, we live our lives growing. That's why Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our thoughts have to be constantly um, washed and immersed in his word about what he, what he says about us. Okay, I want to make a comment. I'm, I'm get, getting long here, but I want to make a comment on Second Corinthians 3 before we close Because the sermon today is how to glow like Jesus or something. I called it something like that glow like Jesus. That sounds very, I don't know, silly kind of. But it's what the Bible describes is that his glory glows. Okay. so here's here's what's happened. Jesus is he's he's already led the exodus. He already has done it. It's accomplished. He did it 2000 years ago. And when we say yes to him, I follow him. He's my Lord. He was raised from the dead. He died for my sins. When we follow him, we're now restored. Anyone in, who is in Christ is a what, says Paul? A new creation. Okay, so I'm a new creation. I will have days when I don't think that of myself and I don't really believe it, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. That I am to glow like Jesus in my everyday life. This is, I think, two, two reasons why we don't, why it doesn't seem more real to us in daily life. One is that we don't understand how righteous we are. This is hard to grasp. There's always this little sliver of me or my mind that says my current standing before God is based on my performance. There's always this little part of me that wants to groan and moan against the full truth of the gospel. It's up to me. But that's only going to keep throwing you deeper into the struggle against flesh, against the old nature. But believing what God says of you and what God sees when he looks at you, a beloved son, a beloved daughter, that is going to be the way into living a righteous life that bears fruit for God's kingdom. Thinking God's thoughts about you. You know, it says it delights in you. you know, most of us would say God loves me, but a lot of us, truth be told, would probably say, I don't think he really likes me most days. I feel like that sometimes, but that's my thoughts or the devil's thoughts. It's not from God. and We can't walk around with condemnation. Number two, why we don't, why isn't this more real to us in daily life? I think because we don't think about it or act on it enough. We don't think about it or act on it enough. And let me give you a formula. Now, I hate formulas. (laughs) I hate formulas. The Christian life's not a formula, okay? But let me give you a formula. Okay. It'll make sense. Active reflection. Active reflection. Plus risk-taking equals a release of power and glory. Actively reflecting on who God says I am and saying, hmm, if that's true, I see you have a broken arm. Hey, I know a Jesus who can heal you. Can I pray for you? Risk-taking. Ah, scary. Equals a release of God's power and God's glory. This guy can be healed because of who Jesus is in me, not because of my level of confidence in my own faith. See the difference? This is what I want us to hear today. The cross, because the cross is everything. Everything, all the riches and glory and the inheritance that is yours as a Christian was purchased for you on Calvary. Healing, deliverance, salvation, forgiveness, redemption, freedom, all those things that we walk in were purchased for us On Calvary, where we were his enemies, but he chose to extend a hand of amnesty towards us. He threw us a life preserver when we were drowning, however you want to look at it, to pull us up into the lifeboat and embrace us and put a towel around us, a towel of righteousness. And you and I don't reflect the glory of God because of our confidence in our daily moral record or how many hours we prayed throughout the week. But we do it with confidence in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Peter Peter saw what happened on the mount, and then he still messed up a lot. He had struggles. He denied Jesus. He betrayed him. Denied him three times when Jesus got arrested before he was crucified. And... Uh, Jesus took him after his resurrection. He came to Peter and just and Peter probably was crushed. He went back to fishing because he was fishing when Jesus found him. He went, I'm going back to my old job. I've failed. Denied my Lord. I could never, ever, ever follow him again because I've ruined it. And Jesus comes to him. He says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, yes, I love you. He says, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, right? And three times, Jesus asks him that. And the transformation that we see on, in Peter after that, and then he's filled with the Holy Spirit when Jesus goes back to heaven and the transformation that we see in him, he begins to boldly proclaim the gospel. He becomes a living, breathing witness carrying out the human vocation to reflect God's glory, people would get healed when Peter's shadow walked by them. Peter, really? The guy who never had a filter, who failed at everything as a disciple of Jesus? And yet, he turned his gaze back to the glory of Jesus' face. And he restored him, he filled him, healed him of all that pain guilt and shame and sent him out to be fisher of men it's awesome isn't god good he is so good so your purpose is to glow like jesus and for god's power his glory his love his humility to shine through you now in the world today not when you get to heaven Jesus Jesus didn't he didn't mostly just teach his disciples how to get to heaven. I never I never hear him say, Here's how you get to heaven. He does teach them about entering the kingdom of God. But what does he say about that? The kingdom of God is among you. He trains them to heal the sick, cast out demons, preach the gospel, preach good news to the poor. He does all that. He was always Primarily focused on training his followers to impact the world around them. To glow like him. And that's our, that is our mission and that's what we do when we gather here. This is, our, uh, this is our training ground, so to speak. Because we get in his glory and we worship him and we just are free in his presence. And we're impacted by that and we're impacted by his word. And it's a training ground where we're being formed as disciples to go out there and reflect his glory. Amen? Okay. Lord, thank you for your word that has power. It's living and active. It convicts us, Lord, of our sin. It convicts us of our our lack of of lack of belief. That our sin is forgiven and that your righteousness has been granted to us. That your record is ours, Jesus. So I pray, Lord, for anyone struggling with fear shame or guilt in this room this morning lord that they would just turn their eyes to you right now and say jesus take take my guilt take my shame i'm sorry for any way that i've failed you i'm sorry for not looking at you like i should be and lord extend your love your healing power your restoring power so that we can be the disciples who glow like you in the world We thank you, Lord. We ask that you just come now, Holy Spirit, minister to our hearts throughout this service. Lord, minister to our hearts and help us to look at your son, Father, in his name. Amen. Let's stand together this morning. Mm Let us proclaim our faith in the words of the apostles.